with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social, a street marketing firm for addiction treatment behavioral health providers. Today, I'm speaking with Stu Siegel. He's a principal over at Fleming Tenet, a consulting firm for payer contracting and relationships. He's a lot of experience inside the payers as well as on the provider side. So he's a wealth of information in terms of contracting and getting great reimbursement rates. But before we speak with him, I want to hear from our great sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So a question that I often get asked is, Nick, how do we get the best reimbursement rates possible? And you'll see a lot of providers that will choose the location of their facilities, particularly the states that they operate in, based on insurance reimbursement rates. Um, They will do a lot of work around trying to understand what other providers in the market are getting and then negotiating contracts to try to match those rates or get better than those rates. But the reality is that getting uh, maximum, let's say, reimbursement rate it's not easy. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of prep work. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of the display of results and ability to build relationships with the payers, all of which is quite complicated and not something that usually providers have internal expertise on. So I wanted to meet with Stu, and he worked inside the payers for decades, as well as now on the provider side doing consulting to do the contracting with the payers. And this has a wealth of expertise in both sides of the table. So very, very excited to have him on and have him share his wisdom and experience with us. So with that, let's jump in. Hey Stu, appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and the company you're working with? Sure, Um, I'm Stu Siegel. By way of background uh, on the behavioral health side, I have uh, been the CEO of a fully integrated, fully capitated behavioral health treatment system, including inpatient, outpatient, partial hospital. Um, I've also been the head of um, behavioral health for U.S. healthcare. And when Aetna purchased us, I became uh, head of behavioral health for the combined companies, done some other work for managed behavioral healthcare organizations. And today I do consulting uh, with providers who are trying to achieve better contracts or new contracts with health plans. And that's, I think, what we wanted to dig into right away is you've got that experience both on the payer side as well as helping on the provider side. You know, what are the points of agreement? What are the points of tension you see um, between in the payer-provider relationship? Sure. So especially these days, the, the probably the chief tension is on rates uh, or doing a contract at all. The, the, in my recent experience, the, all the larger pay, pay, uh, payers, mostly uh, health plans, are actually trying to reduce the rates they're paying to their providers uh, through various means, as opposed to being willing to, um, to improve the contracts from a rate point of view. Um, you know, you can generally sort of fight to a standoff in that regard and get a little bit of an increase, maybe a percent or two. Uh, if you've done extraordinary work and you're in an area that's underserved, uh, that helps. If you've got some good statistics as to uh, the improvement of patients that are in your care, that helps. Uh, the other thing is that that I would say is that most health plans since uh, COVID have sort of reorganized themselves and fewer decisions can be made at the local market level. Most decisions these days, particularly around rates, 
uh, go up a level or two. So I always advise my clients to be patient. These, these things don't happen overnight. I think that's a really interesting one because that comes up pretty often, you know, when a provider is either opening up a new location or you have a new provider coming in, you know, a lot of the payers want data and that's a requirement to negotiating rates. So you mentioned the fact that there could be, you know, a network need where the, the payer just doesn't have that kind of coverage that they need for that particular service or maybe a specialization with a particular Correct. group of people. But I mean, what's your thoughts or what's your response when a provider comes to you and says, well, you know, I'm, I'm a new provider or we've got a new location. I want to get the best rates. You know, how, how do you respond to that kind of request? Yeah. So so what I would say is there, there's a, a dichotomy there. So if you're a provider that already has a contract with the health plan for other of your centers, let's say, that's a lot easier because, well, it's easier, I should say, if you have data, if you've collected data and it's data that's complete, uh, and it's data that has a, a long period of time of development. Uh, it doesn't do any good to just simply say, oh, over the, you know, something like over the last three months, we've had no recidivism. Well, three months does not two years make or a year make. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a brand new provider, uh, it is very difficult these days to get a contract unless it's in a really underserved area. Uh, typically what payers these days will ask is that, and it's kind of, it's kind of on the face of it, it kind of doesn't make sense, but this is the way it is, is, hey, get some experience and a year from now, recontact us and we'll see if we want to do a contract with you. So it's a, it's a real dilemma for, for brand new providers, for providers that have multiple locations and have good experience with a particular health plan. It's much easier to get a network with your new site than it, than it would be if you're brand new to the, to the market. Yeah. And is there anything else that can potentially help that conversation along for a brand new provider? So again, you mentioned the gap and then network coverage, but potentially... Um, but anything else that you guys have seen in your experience that is helpful when trying to go and network sooner rather than later? It, it perhaps shouldn't be this way, but it is. And that is if, if you have really good connections within a health plan, um, you know, either you're using a consultant that does, which is, uh, you know, kind of what we do in my group of consultants, is that we have a lot of deep relationships with health plans having been on that side. Um, if you don't have that kind of um, relationship existing already with health plans, it's really tough. And sometimes what you can do is, is find somebody who you know, maybe a state le legislature person who is in that area can make a recommendation that a health plan meet with you but it's, it's just a difficult thing to overcome, uh, which is in a lot of ways why it makes sense to, con to do a national contract with the larger health plans. And that way they already have you, you're already in network and you're really just adding another location or two. That's a much easier lift. Yeah, kind of following along those lines, you know, something that we'll often hear from providers too is they're like, well, you know, we just want the best rates <laughs> I mean, for obvious reasons. It makes yep. sense. But you mentioned the fact of the, the data bills and coming to the table, you know, and that's always our response as well is, look, this isn't, this isn't a negotiation where you go in there and just demand great rates. Like you have to have, you have to basically have arguments, right? You have to have data supporting the fact that you deserve better rates or deserve high rates. It's not just a benchmark analysis. You know, you've got to really be able to prove yourself. So what are your, what are your response or what are your thoughts in terms of how someone can go about prepping for the conversation with the payers to increase the potential chance that they'd be able to get better rates? Yeah, it's almost, uh, it's almost a, a, a sort of a situation where maybe you have to, as a provider, live with a rate you're not satisfied for some period of satisfied with at first blush until such time as you've got experience with that pair and can demonstrate 
that, for example, that you have data that would represent constant improvement in patients over a period of time, let's say a year's period of time. So it's it's easier probably to go in a year later than I'll, I'll use the word command better rates because you're doing such a good job. You've got good patient ratings. You've got good ratings from the primary care physicians that you know these members go back to. Uh, you're demonstrating that the people you treat are less in, less inclined to show up in an emergency room. And this is a big one because there's some data out there that would indicate that uh, the, the majority, the vast majority of people who wind up in the emergency room wind up in the emergency room because of a behavioral health issue. So for example, uh, people who believe they're having a heart attack when they're having a panic attack happens all the time. That's very expensive for the health plan that that person shows up in an emergency room and runs up a significantly sized bill. It's also terrible for the member. Uh, whereas if, if, they, if they had a great relationship with their treatment provider on the behavioral health side, um, you know, they could rely on that instead of running to, 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 the, to the ER, or they're in such a position that they're much more stable and therefore don't wind up with panic attacks that lead to a, a hospitalization or lead to an emergency room visit. The other aspect is that a lot of falls are related to substance use disorders. You know, people overdosing, or people falling down a flight of steps or just tripping because they're they're under the influence, wind up in the hospital and run up a big bill. And if they were more stable in their recovery, they wouldn't be doing that. So health plans, you know, are really looking at total cost of care these days, much more than ever. Uh, so it's what what Joe Blow uses totally across the spectrum of care, not just behavioral health. And there's a lot of evidence out there, a tremendous amount of evidence out there that behavioral health problems, particularly substance use disorder, lead to, for example, for people who have chronic illness, their spend per month can be three, four, five times as high as somebody without substance use disorder and a chronic illness. Um, so that's kind of the thing that that health plans are looking more about is the total cost of care and how a provide a really good providers can have an effect on that. Yeah, I appreciate those insights. I think something we've mentioned on a couple other episodes of this podcast, what I always like to remind listeners of is when you're looking at that result, it really is about your results. So when the payer has got a per member per month cost associated with it and tire with SUD, it's higher with mental or behavioral health issues, you can't just point to some random research and say, well, look, longer lengths of stay show improved outcomes, or you know, the fact that we're running evidence-based treatment or we're doing trauma-informed care shows better outcomes. The payer wants to see that you are actually delivering those outcomes yes. because it's great that you are trying to implement some evidence-based practices, right? And using the research, but it's not about what you do. It's about how you do it. And so they want to know, do you do it well enough that you are actually efficacious in the results that you're getting with patients driving down costs? And that's what's going to move the needle for the payer and help you in the contract negotiation. Would you agree? Yeah, and that's why you need really mature data. You know, you, you can't just pick. And I've seen it happen, you know, sitting on the health plan side. I've seen provi providers come in and say, you know, over the last four months, we've had no readmissions. Isn't that great? Well, no, that, that's wonderful. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. But I want to see it from a longitudinal perspective, year over year. Uh, and 18 months is, I think, a good proof cycle in terms of data. But but as you as you well know, Nick, providers are anxious to get a rate increase now, not 18 months from now. I think the, the thing to emphasize is the point that you're bringing up is all the legwork that goes into it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's systems and processes, it's training, it's making sure that you've got the clinical and the care team delivering the results, first of all, right? Because if you're not delivering the results, then it doesn't matter. Exactly 
how much you're tracking because <laughs> the tracking is not going to help you out. And then you got to track it and you've got to be able to collate that data and present it in a way and, and track the right things from a payer perspective, which as you mentioned, is really around cost reduction, ER visits and similar aspects of the patient life or, or what payer really cares about. They, they want to see the best quality of care at the most reasonable cost. Exactly right. And, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes people get, have the wrong impression of health plans. And that, you know, that is, oh, all they want to do is make money on you. They're not, they don't care if you get treatment. Well, that's not true. The fact is that health plans make more money, the healthier patients are, and the more stable patients are because they're receiving less unnecessary care. Uh, so, you know, that that whole aspect is a myth. The other thing I would say is that, and I've seen this in action, is that the care managers at the facilities really need to have a good tight relationship with the care managers at the health plan. And that can be very influential when you're going in for a rate increase that the people who work for that health plan in the behavioral health area have a good feel for what you do and how you do it and which patients you treat best. That can't, that can't be overstated the importance of that kind of relationship between the two parties. It's a really good point to bring up, and we've seen that pretty consistently as well. You know, we are all human at the end of the day, and even though the payers are these behemoths of kind of bureaucratic organizations, and they can be frustrating to work through or get things through the, the levels and channels you need to, we absolutely see benefit in just having a personal relationship and having the main point of contact being someone that trusts you right? As a provider and just naturally as humans, right? We're going to try and help that person out. We're going to say, okay, well, you know. Yeah. And I, I can, I can actually cite an example, you know, back in the days when I was inside a health plan running behavior health, when a provider would come in or, or indicate by email or whatever that they wanted to come in and talk about a rate increase, I would go to our, our clinical staff and say, look, forget price. I, I, we don't even expose our clinical staff to what the price of things are. We want them to make decisions based upon quality. But we would go to our clinical team and say, what do you think of facility X and the care they give? What are you hearing back from aftercare, that kind of thing? Uh, and that was very influential in our making decisions to uh, perhaps do value-based comp or increase a provider's rate is the relationship that they have with with our own clinical team. So they have to they have to not. I guess my my advice is don't regard the people on the other end of the phone from you as a provider. Don't be antagonistic with those people. You really need to have a good tight working relationship. Uh, and yeah. total honesty about things. Yeah, yeah, that's really strong advice. So we've mentioned some of the prep that's needed, but if you wanted to just kind of make it into a simple couple step-by-step forms, like what are the first three or four things that providers need to be putting in place before they're going to the contract negotiation table? Great question. So I, I would say data, data, data. Everything in health plans these days runs on data. So if you don't have really good data, particularly about patient improvement on a, on a longitudinal basis, you're in bad shape. You have, to be, you have to be screening patients regularly while they're in your care so that you can actually demonstrate that you have made an impact, a positive impact on that patient's you know, level of need. So you know, data is, is critical. Having systems that really capture the data, and you can't just have data on a piece of paper someplace. You know, it has to be in an organized system that you can report from. The, the other thing is, I think that yeah, you need, and on that data side, the data collection side, you need to have total buy-in from the staff. If management, at a facility looks at a system, let's say, and they say, all right, we'll throw a few thousand dollars a month at it, but we don't really care. It, you know, it's not important to us what the outcomes are. That's just foolish. So what I'm saying is that the entire team, the clinical team and the business team 
within substance use treatment facilities has to buy into the fact that data is really important and usable and that they learn from the data to make changes in their clinical pathways, let's say. Yeah, I, I something we've talked about on the podcast by faith, actually those feedback informed care loops. And I hear it more and more from the payer side. And so I'm, I'm glad you're emphasizing it here because I think it's still a nascent aspect of the field, right? But that's, that's a huge gap is once people have started doing some data tracking, you have to use it in a way that actually improves the clinical care. Right. It can't just be, can't just be a data tracking tool that sits there and runs, you know, in the background. Yeah. If, if the data isn't used and you can't demonstrate that you're using, I think this is really important too. Yeah. You're collecting data. So what provider, what are you doing with it? How does it impact your pathways? How does it impact Joe Jones versus Susie Smith? Because you have you know, data on both of them and they need different things at different times. So you have to be able to show evidence that you're really using the data to make change. Yep. Well, obviously one of the bigger topics in the space shifting gears a bit is value-based care. I hear about it all the time. Right. When you're thinking about the spectrum of fee-for-service to value-based care and everything in between, you know, what's your current perspective on how providers should be looking at the payment models that they're negotiating with the payers? Well, I, as you know, Nick, behavioral health has is well, traditionally behavioral health has been sort of the red-haired stepkid of total healthcare. Yeah. Because, you know, when you look at the percentage of premium that behavioral health care is and the total spend versus total medical spend, it's, it's you know, a small percentage, but it's a very important percentage uh, because behavioral health things are a significant influence on physical health. And I, I think that the a recognition amongst the staff that value-based care is coming to behavioral health. It's not just going to be the purview of physical medicine any longer, that it's coming. If you haven't already experienced it as a provider, you're going to. And if you're, and it's going to be about data, it's going to be about whatever those criteria are that are set in a value-based co you know, contract, whether it's recidivism, whether it's quality, you know, quality measures, a whole array of different things, it's going to hit you as a, as a provider if it hasn't already. And it goes back to data. It goes back to being able to capture the data and cause improvement. So I guess my, I guess in summary, if you don't already have it within your contracts with payers, it's going to be, and you can't fight it. And you'd be, and you would not be smart as business people or clinical people to fight the advent of uh, of quality measures recidivism rates within behavioral health, particularly substance use disorder? No, I, I think providers have been hearing this for a couple of years now, right? That value-based care. Yeah, they have, but that doesn't mean it's really taken effect in any kind of large way. Yeah. And I think the, the struggle most providers, you know, that we talk to would have is they'll go to the payers and say, hey, we heard about this value-based care thing. We want to work with you guys on this. And the payer's response is generally, yeah, that sounds interesting. Uh, what do you think that would look like? You know, mm -hmm. and so the providers are usually pretty surprised because they just assumed that the payers had templates in place that they were going to apply to this particular negotiation. And that's not really the case right now. I agree. You know, so how, how do you recommend that providers approach that conversation? Or what do you recommend that maybe they come to the table with? It's, it's funny and ironic that you should mention that because one of my clients, uh, my consulting clients is a substance use disorder treatment technology company. And, you know, there one of their questions of me was, hey, what do you think this health plan is going to require? from us. And, uh, and my advice to them is when you sit down and, and discuss a new contract or discuss improving your rates and initiating value-based care, come to, to the health plan with what you think makes sense from a clinical point of view. 
and a total and a reduction of total cost of care view. Because that way you get to frame, I think, you get to frame the discussion with the payer instead of the payer saying, well, you know, we got these two or three measures and nobody really looks at them. So so come prepared for the discussion in terms of what you can already do with data and what your history has been in improving care uh, and, and reducing recidivism. I, that's my general advice to, to SUD clients is what do you do best? What can you evidence that you do best? Go to the health plan with that in your pocket and then work with them around that framework. I like that because another one of the pain points that you'll often hear from providers is that they don't have access to the data, right? So if we're looking at ER visit data, even if we're looking at readmission mm -hmm. data, all they have is readmission to their facility. They don't know if a patient went to somewhere else, which often exactly. happens. And so then there becomes this point where like, well, we wish the payers would give us the data. The payers are back and forth on that, depending on the size of the provider. So very helpful idea, I think. Say, hey, this is what you can control. This is the data that you have. So why don't you frame the value-based care contract around what you have rather than relying on what the payer has because you don't have access to it. That, that's great. Yeah, and you, and you have to, I think, understand the health plan's point of view. You know, they, they just can't share with a provider emergency room visits or visits to primaries. They can, you know, perhaps get de-identified data to you that shows your influence. But that's, you know, that becomes part of the negotiation for a value-based contract. And, you know, look, some, some payers are more advanced than others in doing value-based contracting, especially in behavior, the behavioral health arena. Others are more advanced. So they'll tell you what will work or what they, you know, what they'd eventually like to see. But go in with a with a notion, a, a reasonably well-baked notion of what you can do and what influence your program can be on the health plans, quality of care to their members, and also you know, cost, total cost of care, at least go with some notional view of what, based upon what you know you can produce as a, as a provider in terms of data, you know, don't, don't go to, go way out there on the hypothetical, start with what you know you can report on. Yeah. And that it can be, that it's auditable. <laughs> sure. Right, right. No, totally. That makes a lot of sense. What about that spectrum when people are thinking it's not really an either or, right? It's not just fee for service or just a full at risk value based care contract. I mean, you've got DRGs, you've got capitated rates, you've got bundled payments. Can you help providers understand a little bit about what, what some of those differences are? And yeah, I think so. You know, when you when you're in a fee for service environment environment, that doesn't mean you can't get value add payments. You know, because yes, you're getting paid on a fee-for-service basis for each unit of service you provide at a set rate, but you can also get payments for the quality you deliver, not just you know the unit number of units you delivered. Um, so that's one way of going at it. It's you know fee-for-service plus value-based comp, quality-based comp, capitation could be the same thing that you know, where you get, you're capitated for a group of members, you know, a certain population in a certain area. There's no reason that you can't also uh, work out a quality incentive above that capitation. Because remember, you know, most people gripe about capitation as being, oh, well, that means you're going to deny care. Well, no, it doesn't. It, it means you're going to deliver appropriate care at the appropriate time, at the appropriate level of care. And that if you do a really good job of it, you should be compensated at a higher rate than just your capitation. And the same thing could apply to case rates. So there isn't any, there's certainly no technical reason why you can't have fee-for-service or case rate or capitation and some kind of value-based quality care comp. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think something that's worth going back to is 
the focus on that feedback loop and the improvement in the quality of care. And so I know you haven't been on the payer side for a while, but obviously you're still heavily involved in the work that you're doing now. When I talk to the payers, the biggest frustration is the fact that everyone seems to be getting the same results. And so I'll often get asked that question. It's like, well, Nick, why do you, why do you think this is? People are coming to us with different contracting, alternative payment model options. They're telling us all this stuff. They're starting to show us some data. So we're happy there's some progress here. But then when we look at the claims data, their readmission rates, the ER visits, it's all the same as everyone else. It's curious on what your recommendations would be if you have some deeper, obviously mentioned, hey, look at the data and use it. But just any thoughts on that or any experiences from the payer side yeah. on that frustration of, of uh, a flat line in, in results? It's a great question. I think there are a few things. Um, one would be, uh, you know, I say it all the time, be patient. These things don't happen overnight. It could take you six months, eight months, 12 months to negotiate a value-based comp on top of what you're already getting. I think, too, the relationship that you have that you as a provider have with the folks at the plan, uh, particularly the clinical folks at the plan, can, can help drive a conversation that shows you're different. So there's a lot of trust factor there. Uh, and you know, I think too, that the value that you have is that people, a value that you have, I should say, is that people have heard about you as a facility and that you do good work and that they've had a great experience. Because the old days, as you know, Nick, of being able to, to direct a patient into a particular facility, which, you know, back in the in the 90s, we were able to do. We had a certain number of facilities and we steered people depending upon a lot of considerations. That no longer is the case. So if if you want more people coming to your facility, reach out into the community too and 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 build your relationship that will eventually go back to the payers. But again, be patient. It's, it's, and I guess the other thing I would say sort of on this subject is that, as I said earlier, the, the local market people in a lot of health plans these days, particularly the big national ones, they don't have as much freedom to negotiate rates as you facility X might think. They've got they've got their own hurdles to go through. They um, they have people they report to. They have to work within the to a total budget. So don't think that you're just being you know pushed off. Have have a have, be patient and have and have respect for what the provider, what the payer people go through, and what they have to be able to prove inside their organization to get you a rate increase. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's helpful for providers also to understand that, you know, as you mentioned before, behavioral health is just a small part of, of the overall business for a payer. I mean, it's usually less than 2%, right? 98% of, of their costs of what they're dealing with with their members is physical health related. And so, you know, sometimes providers think, hey, you know, because this is our world, this is all we do, and it seems really big to us but we're, we're such a small part of the overall pie. And we actually don't have that much leverage. When you're talking about a hospital system that's seen tens of thousands of patients a month, and then yeah. you're an SUD provider who sees, you know, 50, <laughs> the payer's just like, bruh, you know, I mean, this, is, this almost isn't worth our time. Obviously that's not how they're thinking about it, but yeah. at the same time, yeah. it, it is, it is in the back of their head. And that is how I'd say the wider organization is thinking about it. So even if you're talking to the rep that's responsible for SUD and yes, they want to work with you on that, the wider organization has much bigger priorities, which is the 98% of their cost that they're dealing with, you know, so you don't have as much leverage that I think a provider often thinks they have. Yeah, I would, I would though push back a little bit on that, Nick, in this respect, that if you look, if you look at it from an isolated point of view, like what is as a health plan, and it's you know it, it could be two percent, it could be four percent, it could be five percent in certain plans. It just depends on utilization and a whole bunch of other factors. But that's the tip of the iceberg. the The fact is that people, for example, let's suppose somebody is diagnosed 
with diabetes, you can bet that they're going to be anxious, worried, scared. They're going to want to perhaps take advantage of their behavioral health benefit. And doing that will help keep them, if they do that, they will be more adherent to a treatment plan. So behavioral health providers have a great ability to influence total cost of care. And I, I think that very few of them understand, the treatment providers, understand that or understand how people, it's more no, better known today. But look, the fact is that a lot of people who are on drugs and alcohol are there because they're self-medicating from a behavioral health disorder. So that two, that two to 4%, let's call it, is really a, is much higher when you look at it in terms of total cost of care to the person who has those, those uh, disease states. Yeah, that's a really important point. You're, you're right. And, you know, I mean, Evernorth just ran a, a big study on that. Uh, I was talking to Humana on it um, a couple of weeks ago. And they're definitely cognizant of the, the total cost of care component. I even think the diabetes one was actually brought up specifically where people with behavioral health issues just have much lower diabetes compliance and you know diabetes non-compliance is a, is a massive cost <laughs> yeah because they kind of believe or people with heart failure um, people with any kind of significant chronic disorder a lot of a lot of them kind of say why bother i'm just gonna die anyway so you know what, I'm not going to go into treatment or I'm not going to take my Medicaid, you know, I'm not going to stick myself with a needle every day. Uh, I'm not going to use my glucometer. What's the point? You know, I'm going to die now anyway. So and then they get sicker and sicker and sicker, whereas if they were treated or self-medicate, whereas if they were treated, the level of adherent, adherence for their physical medicine problem would be much higher than otherwise. And I, I, I would share with you that there's, there's perhaps an educational environment or an educational need that treatment providers need to do, and has to be handled carefully, need to do with, with whomever it is that they're working with at a health plan who's negotiating behavioral health contracts. Because they, despite the fact they're in a health plan, despite the fact that there's information out there, their job is to just contract for behavioral health services. They may not fully appreciate the total effect of proper treatment and getting people in access quickly on their the total bottom line of that health plan. And I so I think a soft educational approach to that could actually open some eyes with some health plans. You know, the people who are going to negotiate. Yeah, that's a that's a good approach, and 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 I should also add that um, it's incumbent upon the providers that when they're meeting with a medical director from a health plan or somebody else clinical from a health plan before they get in network or while they're trying to get in network, they need to understand that too. They need to understand their the, their role in achieving better healthcare costs for the health plan, for their, for their self-insured clients and their insured clients. So they need to be able to communicate that to the other side, which is the payer side. So it's educational. It's really important for your team that's going to go out and negotiate for you uh, to be aware of that whole total cost of care consideration. Yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, I think also something that you mentioned previously about just around the data tracking and things, and, and but also the positive patient feedback is this is something that providers have to be uh, careful not to become overconfident on. Oh, sure. If you look at, you know, let's say a placebo rate, and, you know, there hasn't been firm agreement on what that is with an SUD, but let's say 30%, right, would be kind of an average placebo rate we can use as a, a rule of thumb. Well, that means that one in three patients that are coming to your facility, we're going to get better no matter what, right? Whether they went into AA, whether they went for self-help, or they went somewhere else, 
And so that's your hurdle rate. And so, yeah, you're getting all this positive feedback from patients, maybe some positive feedback from, from the community, but are you actually delivering care that's better than the provider across the street? And so therefore, you know, deserving, let's say, of higher rates, you have to really dig into your data for that. You have to know yeah. your data, you have to really understand it, and you have to understand that there's that hurdle rate of getting past the, the people that were probably gonna get better anyway. But, but to that point, Nick, I think there's an, an aspect to it that um, that you that you, we may not be thinking about. Yes, there are going to be people who are going to get better anyway, because let's suppose, you know, it, their, their concern is about a loved one who's now ill um, and has been for a while and then passes, unfortunately. So that episode that drove that person into substance use or behavioral health problems um, is over at that point, or not completely over, but you, you know what I'm saying, the, 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 the immediate need has passed. Yeah. But who can get, but so yeah, people are, there are people who are just gonna get better naturally, no matter what they do. And maybe not, it's just deciding on their own to, to sober up um, and do it. But the question is, could they at your facility have gotten better faster? Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, because you can prove increases that's a reduction obviously in cost for the payer, it's improvement in quality of life for the patient. And right. it's a very, very important question. Right. The better, faster aspect I think is important, which is why you need to be able to track improvement longitudinal. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of done some deep stuff on the, the prep work that's needed. What's a provider supposed to expect in the overall negotiation process? So I've done my prep work. I'm ready to start having these conversations, have these meetings. What does that look like? What should I expect throughout the process? You know, the, the most, the most probably at the end of the day, the most important thing to know, but you can't get it really, is what are they paying my company? competition in that market right so you <laughs> so can't get at that <laughs> you know you could hire somebody who may be able to scope that out for you but but that's that's the big thing is so that you're not some anomalous kind of thing either on the high side or low side that you're proposing i think i think it's it's the key i think the key is to be able to go in and say now if you're if you're one of many facilities within an organization, then then it's then it's good to talk about what you're experiencing in other markets or or other facilities that are close by, that are part of the same system. Um, I think you can do that. I think you can you can say, hey, we all follow the same process and procedures within our our organization. So the centers. Have the same clinical pathways and things like that, and we and we look at our great great rates across our system. If you're an individual provider, you know if you're, uh, let's say a, a startup substance use treatment facility, I think you know I think it's going to be a matter of getting acquainted with the health plan and not and not just assuming you're going to get a, a great contract. Get acquainted with them get them acquainted with what you're going to do vis-a-vis -vis clinical care, data, aftercare, those kinds of things. So you kind of get known by uh, the staff at the health plan, even while you're just young, or maybe even while you're just getting ready to open. Um, get that communication started. And be patient, and then come back with you know with data, um, or be prepared, as many do, to just say, okay, well, just pay me your street rate health plan, and that'll be it. And then I'll come I'll come back to you later, to show you why you should be very happy you contracted with us because we've got proof source now that we do a better job. Sure. So I mean that's that's probably smart, right? Saying, hey, look, we're willing to come in at the street rate and then we'll prove it to you, which is what, what you're gonna need to do anyway. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. But again, there again, don't expect, I know you know this, 
but don't expect that just because you've had, you know, a fairly decent history so far with a, a health plan that they're going to raise your rates by 30 or 40%. Yeah. You're going to get probably incremental improvement. And the more you go with value-based, the more incremental improvement you'll get. But you're not, you know, just be of the understanding that you're not going to, I'm making up a silly number. If the service was paid at $100, you're not going to the next year get $200 for it. Right. <laughs> that would probably lead to the firing of a lot of people at health plans who negotiate contracts and you wouldn't get it anyway, but you, you understand my point. It's the incremental approach is really important and you have to be well-funded to be able to perhaps do that. What about the expected timeline? You know, how many times are we going to have to have a conversation with the payer over how long of a period of time as we kind of go through the contract negotiation process? Well, um, it has expanded tremendously because, and hopefully this the, the, the crest is already there and it'll smooth out again. But COVID amazed me with respect to how many people left health, good jobs and health plans, just left. Uh, and maybe they went to other health plans because they could get a bump or something like that. But, you know, I've heard stories from our clients and directly from the health plans that we negotiate with that, hey, Stu, you know, it used to be that I could get a contract out in two weeks if we came to terms on the rates. Now it could take me six months because we just don't have the staff to get all the stuff done, credentialing and all that stuff done. So um, my advice would be, I've used this word a hundred times already, patient. You're not going to, don't look for a contract in a month. Don't look for a contract perhaps for two months. More like 90 to 120 days, maybe a little bit longer, maybe 180 days in some health plans. That's just the way it is today. I know it sounds terrible and it is, and it's super frustrating, but it's just the way things are today. What else should providers be looking for in the contract? I mean, we tend to laser focus on rates, but you know that's not the only aspect of a contract. Are there other elements that you recommend providers be looking at as part of that negotiation that's important? <laughs> so one of them is, and it's it's an acute stage for several health plans. What's the financial viability of the health plan? Because uh, you've probably seen stories lately. I'm not going to name the the plans. But several in the country have either been uh, put under supervision by states and they're not paying uh, their bills or they're about to become not solvent. Um, so do your research in terms of, you know, like, well, you don't have to worry about that with that Signet United, you know, that kind of stuff. Anthem, that's not Blue Cars, Blue Shield. But when you're going after some of the smaller plans, Dig in a little bit to their finances. I know that sounds strange, but you know you don't want to get involved with a plan and then have that plan push a number of lives to you, and then all of a sudden they're not paying claims. There's really nothing, you know, in the contracts themselves. They tend to be very, very, very lengthy with a lot of boilerplate stuff. Don't I would say to providers, don't fight it. You know, unless there's something really offensive in an agree in a boilerplate, you're not going to get it changed typically, and they and they have to abide by certain state and federal things that have to go into contracts. So just be aware that a contract is a, is a very generally a very lengthy document, maybe 50, 60, 70 pages, in some cases 100 pages. But don't dig your heels in on silly things within those contracts. The more I think you can show your willingness to just go along to get a contract, the more likely you will be to get a contract. But do your homework about the health plan, do your homework about how many lives they have in a particular market because, and how many other providers they have. And that's actually the number of providers they have is easy because you can generally look on a health plans, um, you know, pick a doc, locate, you know, location on their web and see who, what facilities are in network. And, you know, just know that if there's a ton of facilities in network, the chances of you as the, the new kid on the block of getting a lot of referrals 
you know, not that great. You just have to take some time to build. But my best advice is don't get into protracted wording battles with health plans. Generally, they don't need you. And um, you're better off just kind of conceding on certain things than trying for a protracted contract negotiation. Because then it could take you a year, literally more than, <laughs> more, more than a year. Last question and related to that is a big pain point for providers right now is inflation. And so yeah. their rates have stayed the same, but inflation is way up. You know, is yeah. it reasonable for a provider to go to a payer and say, hey, inflation's way up. We need to do something about this mid-contract. How does that work? Is it reasonable? Absolutely. Is it going to get you anything? Maybe. And I mean that literally. I mean, I'm experiencing that with some of our clients now. It's like, you know, they're, they're saying to me, Stu, go back in and renegotiate. Uh, or if it's a, you know, and they're saying, and look how much our, our costs have gone up, both in terms of people costs, supply costs, rent, whatever it might happen to be. And frankly, you know, the health plans might be a little sensitive to that and might be willing to give you a, a 1% kicker, but don't make that your, you know, your, your cause for going in for, for, for a, a sizable rate increase because it, it, it's not going to get you anywhere. Or if it gets you anywhere, it's going to be small. And they're going to say, and guess what? They're going to say the same thing. You know, the health plan will say, well, my labor costs are way up. You know, I've got everybody working from home and this and that. I'm paying for real estate that doesn't get used. My, I've got a lot of inflation to contend with, new regulations, all that kind of stuff. So it isn't all that powerful just to be able to say, well, look, I need a big cola increase because my costs have gone up. It makes sense and it's accurate, but don't, don't look for a lot of, oh my God, you're right. We'll just give you what you want kind of reaction. Sure, sure. Well, super helpful conversation overall. I really appreciate the times to- Yeah, of course. If I want to get in touch with you, uh, what would be the best way to do so? Uh, the best way to do so would be to send me an email at stuushc at yahoo.com. All right. Well, I really appreciate all the time for all the listeners out there. This is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time. My pleasure. Thanks, Nick.